Welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're the premiere podcast all about your favorite series. Currently, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. The Battle of the Labyrinth, book four. That's not a series, that's a book. That's a book. I made a mistake. <laughs> How you doing today, Jane? Uh, I'm, doing, I'm doing pretty good. I bought some Yu-Gi-Oh cards. I got some cool ones. How are you? Any more Egyptian god cards? Uh, no Egyptian god cards. I got one of the wicked god cards, though. Ooh. Which is like Egyptian god cards, but evil. We have a little bit of wicked god stuff going on in these chapters. We we sure do. I'm okay. I'm super excited for these chapters. These these were packed. A lot a lot happened. Yeah. Do you want to take us away with the summaries? Yep, I can just get stuck right into those. Poggers. Chapter 14. I duel my brother to the death. Despite Annabeth's doubts, Rachel turns out to be adept at guiding the trio through the labyrinth. Annabeth, still skeptical, asks Rachel if her parents will mind that she's gone, and Rachel replies that she could disappear for a week and they wouldn't notice. Before she can elaborate, the gang are quickly surrounded and captured by Kelly the Impusa and a pair of Dracane. They're taken to an arena, which turns out to be the one that Luke was trying to negotiate passage through earlier. He's there, sitting in the stands with a giant with dark red skin, who wears nothing but a filthy loincloth. The stands are filled by Luke's army, hooting and hollering as another giant kills a centaur in the arena proper. The area is also decorated with flags bearing Poseidon's trident, as well as severed heads and human skulls. The red giant declares that he wants entertainment in exchange for Luke's passage through his arena, and Luke offers to have Percy fight to satisfy him. This intrigues the giant, whose name is Antaeus, as he's also a son of Poseidon. The deaths in this arena are, apparently, offerings to Poseidon. Percy is told to fight or else Annabeth and Rachel will be killed, and so he has to battle a demigod. It's not one that Percy's met before, but he introduces himself as Ethan Nakamura. Percy manages to defeat him, but refuses to kill him when Antaeus tells him to, enraging the giant. Seeing his opportunity, Percy challenges Antaeus to a one-on-one -on -one duel, with the stakes being that if Percy wins, he and his friends go free. Unfortunately, no matter how badly Percy wounds him, the ground rises up and heals Antaeus' wounds. Percy realises that this must be because his other parent was Gaia, the Earth Mother. By using chains which are hanging from the ceiling, Percy is able to suspend Antaeus above the ground and kill him without him being able to heal. Unfortunately, Luke decides that since Percy's deal is with Antaeus, he's under no obligation to free them. And, out of options, Percy finally caves and uses Quintus's whistle to summon Mrs. O'Leary to help. In the chaos, Percy, Annabeth, Rachel, and Ethan Nakamura are able to escape. Chapter 15. We steal some slightly used wings. Chris Nakamura bails soon after they leave the arena. It turns out he was the one that Luke found in the tunnels, not Nico. The gang sets up camp, but Rachel shuts down Percy when he tries to talk to her about her home life, so he just goes to sleep. In his dreams, Kronos shows him Tyson and Grover, fighting for their lives against an evil snake in the labyrinth, the chaos of which shakes the labyrinth and wakes them all up. They move on, and eventually find Daedalus's workshop in a weirdly futuristic corridor. Inside, there are wondrous inventions and art of all sorts, with even a window showing the Garden of the Gods in the Rocky Mountains. Then, a figure steps out of the shadows, 
Quintus, who reveals himself to not be an agent of Kronos, but in fact Daedalus himself, in an automaton body. The mark on his shoulder is a brand from Athena, marking him forever as a murderer. He infiltrated Camp Half-Blood using the skills he picked up over thousands of years, and ultimately determined that Luke's side was more right in this war. And, to the group's dismay, he tells them that they're too late to stop him from helping them. Luke already has the string of Ariadne, and by killing Antaeus, Percy has given him passage through the arena. Daedalus reveals Cronus' promise to break the laws of life and death, allowing Daedalus to get Icarus back, make things right with Perdix, and get Minos, a judge of the dead in Hades, off his back. At this point, Kelly, two Lystragonians, Minos, and Nico burst in. Kelly tells Daedalus that he's been hustled, and that they're going to hand him over to Minos now that they have what they need from him. This is why Minos needed Nico to trade Daedalus' soul for his own and resurrect the Cretan king. He begins raising the souls of the damned, but Nico is able to take control of them and cast them back into Hades. In the ensuing fight, the gang plus Nico grab some improved wings that Daedalus has made and bail out of the window, unfortunately leaving Daedalus to fight for his life alone, as he refuses to leave Mrs. O'Leary behind. Chapter 16. I open a coffin. The kids land in a visitor centre and make their way into town. The workshop has disappeared from the garden, so there's no way for them to be followed. In need of a ride, Rachel approaches a random limo driver and has an inaudible conversation with him. Whatever she says, it gets him to agree to take her, Percy, Annabeth, and Nico wherever they need to go. Annabeth also IMs Chiron a warning to get the camp ready for battle, but their chances aren't looking great. After driving around for a while, they find a way back into the labyrinth and head for New York. Rachel and Annabeth start to bond while they talk about architecture, while Percy tries to convince Nico to come back to Camp Half-Blood. This is interrupted when they realise they've come to an exit that comes out on Mount Orthus. They have a direct line into the Titan stronghold. Percy insists on going out to scout, and finds Ethan Nakamura and two sea demons messing with Kronos' blade, salvaged from Mount St. Helens. He uses Annabeth's invisibility cap to get around them, and finds Kronos' coffin unattended. Hoping to put him down before it's too late, he flips open the lid and finds Luke in the coffin, looking completely dead with a hole in his heart. At this point, the Telkahines and Nathan... I almost said Nathan for some reason. What? You have Nathan for you, Brian. Listen, he climbs a mountain in one of those episodes. <laughs> At this point, the Telkahines and Ethan arrive, and all three of them assume the coffin is open because Kronos is rising. They present his new blade, and when Ethan drops to his knees and renounces the gods... The hole in Luke's heart fills, and Kronos rises from the coffin. Percy tries to fight him and gets his ass kicked before Annabeth, Nico, and Rachel intervene, distracting Kronos long enough for the group to escape back into the labyrinth. Chapter 17. The Lost God Speaks. Annabeth is devastated that Luke has been given over entirely to Kronos, but there's no time to mourn. The group have to keep moving. On their way, they run into Grover and Tyson. They're almost at their destination, and all five kids are able to follow Grover's nose to a chamber full of extinct animals. And in the middle of it all, Pan. Unfortunately, instead of agreeing to come back, Pan explains that he's dying and has been for thousands of years. Only the belief of the satyrs has sustained him, and all it did was prolong his suffering. He explains that he can't come back and save the wild as it's too far gone. Other people will have to save it themselves without him. He gives each hero a little pep talk, and tells Grover to spread his message after he dies. And, despite Grover's protestations, that's the end of him. Pan fades away, leaving a wisp of power which goes into every one of them. So, what do you think of these chapters? Percy Jackson has hit its stride. <laughs> I know we said this with, like, the Titan's Curse or something. We were like, wow, Percy Jackson is 
gone up and up and it's not coming back down. Well, we said there was a shit one and now it's good again. Yes, yes. This is like, imagine if you read a book and it was really good. Are you imagining Mm -hmm. it? I am. Uh, That's what this is like. (laughs) Wow, it's almost like I'm there. Yeah, these chapters were great. Uh, I I I loved them to death. I adored them. I really I had fun. I had fun with them. They were like this is payoff city. This is payoff city. This is payoff country. These are this is paying off arcs for this book. It's paying off like Grover's series long arc. Like this the stuff with Quintus. So the stuff with like Luke's sword being missing. Right. Like there's so much that gets resolved here. We have to break this down, okay. Yeah, because, like, as long as those summaries were, I wasn't even able to fit everything into them. Where do we want to start? Do we want to start with... Do we want to start with Ethan? Ethan? Do we want to start with Ethan? <laughs> let's let's start with Ethan. Ethan is a, a, a new character. We haven't seen him before. He mm-hmm. is a... He, he was one of the undetermined kids. He was in Hermes' cabin. And yeah. he's very disaffected. Because we also learn that he is a son of Nemesis. Oh, shit, yeah, I forgot about that. And this book has been really piling on the, like, how good are the gods, really? Like, obviously, Kronos' side sucks because, like, oh, they're forcing kids to fight to the death, etc., etc. The Olympians sure also do seem to be making kids fight to the death. Yeah, and I think getting a character... We got Calypso before. We got Calypso before, yeah. and that's that's important. But now we've also got Ethan Nakamura, and he he's so... Dis- like, they're literal, there isn't a cabin for a kid like him. This might this is the first demigod child of, like, a minor god that we've met. Oh, shit. Is Nemesis not part of the, like, Big 12? No, no, no. All right, I see. Yeah, wait, that sucks. That really does suck, doesn't it? And so he's kind of the perfect character to illustrate this point that, like, Camp Half-Blood and, like, the community as it exists is not built to, like, sustain a relationship in that way with, like, children of minor gods, even in insofar as it, like, is already disaffecting for kids of the, like, Big 12. Yeah, it, like, it seems to have been built by the Big 12 for the benefit of their kids and anything else was a secondary concern. Exactly. So I think he's a really effective character. Definitely. He has a cool design. <laughs> he's just like wearing an eye patch. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't sure if this was like he lost an eye or he thinks it looks cool. I I think he must have lost an eye. He's like an eye for an eye or whatever. And maybe it's just Oh yeah, you know that makes sense if he's like a kid of Nemesis. Maybe he's just like being symbolic. Like he's like <laughs> He's like, but one, this will make me look cool. Two, it'll be a good, it'll be a good one-liner to say when I betray someone. Okay, but like that, that is on the level of like Percy carrying around a goldfish in a bag because he's the son of Poseidon. <laughs> he might, he might. He <laughs> he carries water within himself. You it's know? true. The gods are. I this this has to build to a big climax. I mean, the book's called The Battle of the Labyrinth. We haven't gotten the battle yet. He, tr- but specifically what I mean is, like, all the stuff with, like, are the gods really that good? All that kind of stuff. Listen, the gods are going to set up a formal inquiry, uh, which will give some mildly critical results in two years that will then be ignored. 
Likely. I just, like, I don't know. I, I don't think Rick Riordan is, like, a revolutionary leftist. Oh, definitely not. And so I do think, I, I do think it's more likely that there is going to be, like, the gods will make some reforms. That is absolutely what I think is going to happen. But, you know, hopefully it's at least somewhat satisfying. I hope so. I mean, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to align with our politics to be, like, you know, a satisfying narrative. True. Even if we we would prefer it did. We definitely would. Listen, we, we want Percy Jackson to be as based as possible. God. I <laughs> I hate that you say a word sometimes. <laughs> based or bast? Uh, I think uh, bast we're saving for the Kane Chronicles. No, no, bast as in B-A-S-S-E-D. Like the mm, fish. Okay, we both took two different joke approaches with it. I see. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty funny. We're both good at this. We did it. Hopefully the audience will laugh twice as hard upon hearing this very funny jape. Yeah. So, audience, uh, if you laughed, you can Hello. send in your laughter to <laughs> unwisegirlspod at gmail.com. You can do that in an audio recording, or you can do that through just, like, written text, like, ha, ha, ha. Uh, it's up to you. It's your prerogative. Just let us know if you found it funny. Uh, we're, we're doing some focus testing right now. Yeah, I mean, if you want to record something, you will just have to, like, try your best to replicate the laughter as best as possible. Unless you're recording yourself all the time, which, I mean, I'm recording myself right now, but that would still be weird. In which case, you're living in Marble Hornets. <laughs> in which case, you have much bigger problems than sending in our laughter. You you deal with your shit. And speaking of big problems, let's, let's talk Antaeus. Let's talk about this big fucking no, almost naked lad. We love a big lad. I watched the Texas Chainsaw Massacre <laughs> last night. There were some good big lads in there. Do they get smaller when they're chainsawed? No, in fact. It was the, the big lad carrying the chainsaw. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Because... That would improve this fight if Antaeus had a chainsaw. True, but it's still a pretty good fight. Yeah, this chapter is like basically wall-to-wall action scenes. Yes. And they're like good action scenes. They are. Like, every... Well, the first one, Percy just kind of... I didn't even mention it in the summaries because it's so inconsequential. Percy just wins by stabbing his opponent. Pretty cool. But the next two, Percy, like, just uses, like, wits and guile to get around what his opponent is doing and win. And it's just really satisfying. Yeah, the fight with Antaeus was very good. Specifically, like, you know, we we're, we're always saying this. We got, like, clever Percy solutions to fights... That's always going to be a thing that we praise. And in this case, Percy's solution was to be Spider-Man. Yes. What you might not know is that Antaeus is like another stealth labors of Hercules thing. Oh, okay. In some versions of the myth, when Heracles was going to pick the apples, the apples of the Hesperides, mm-hmm. he ran into Antaeus, the world's you know strongest wrestler, Oh, right, right. Antaeus challenged him to a fight, and Hercules just, like, lifted him up into the air and crushed him with a bear hug. (laughs) Which, awesome, for sure. So he just kind of wins by being cool and strong. Yeah. Just, like, I I, I bet Percy, Percy's not, if, like, he had been inside the water, he could have crushed, well, no, Antaeus is also a son of Poseidon. Yeah, no, I think if they were in water, if they were on, like, the seabed, Percy would have died. Yes. Oh, God, no. That's 
that would have been the worst combination. <laughs> but he was actually originally a, a figure in Berber mythology. All right. This is one of those examples of like, mythologies are not like a static thing that originate from one place. Well, yeah, the Romans pretty much lifted this entire rogues gallery of gods wholesale. Yeah, and we'll have a lot to talk about with like Egypt and like the like the legacy of like how much was mixed with Rome and Greece and like uh-huh. the conquest. Like the the Egyptians were basically like ancient Egyptians were basically like, okay, we're gonna conquer you and spread our gods everywhere. So, and um, he he was probably incorporated into the mythology after the Greek conquest of Libya. Uh huh. I just think that's interesting. That is cool. I did not know that. I also didn't know that Antaeus existed before I read this chapter, but you know. Yeah. Um. So he's a he's a fun villain. I think you don't get a lot of you don't get a lot of them. You don't you get a lot of fun villains, but you don't get a lot of like super intimidating cool villains like this. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I was actually thinking about this. Have we had like any really strong central antagonists in a Percy Jackson book? Other than Kronos. Well, Kronos is kind of like, you know, he is he's being antagonistic, but like he's normally not the main focus. Like he's off in the background doing his own thing. Uh, I think that that kind of depends on your definition of like antagonist, but I I, I, I see, suppose I see what you're saying though. So like I think the closest we've had is like Polyphemus. Yeah, definitely. And that was kind of a car crash. Yeah, we weren't big into the Polyphemus thing. Like, I think that maybe the person who you could consider the main antagonist in this one, or one of the main antagonists, Quintus, is maybe the strongest one we've had so far. I don't know that Quintus is really, like, antagonist-y. No? Hmm, I think maybe it's more Minos. Uh, I, maybe... No, I mean, like, um, Minos has kind of been behind a lot of the events of this book. Like, he's been working with Kronos all along. He's been pushing Nico along in the background. Like, I don't know. He's, he feels like the villain we've maybe had the most face time with in this book. That's fair. That's fair. It's it kind of is sticking to that pattern, though, of not having a really central antagonist. Mm-hmm. Which I think is fine. It works well. Yeah, no, it hasn't really hurt these books, I'd say. No. There, there are some big twists in these chapters. We are, we are in Twist City. Population Quintus. Population Quintus. Population Luke? Question mark. Let's, let's start with Quintus. I guarantee you that the fandom name for him is like Lucronos. Lucronos. It's, it's like Greeling in Full Metal Alchemist. What if it's like Chrono Luke? <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. That sounds like an early 2000s RPG that a lot of people say is very good and I have no intention of ever touching. Play Chrono Trigger. What's wrong with you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm glad you caught where I was going with that. It's really good. It's on the DS. Oh, if it's on the DS, then maybe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so let's start with Quintus. We find out in these chapters... Okay, last episode we came to the conclusion that the coolest possible thing to happen would be that we find out that Quintus isn't like working for Kronos or secretly like working for Camp Half Blood, but is in fact just like his own free agent. And we we asked, and Rick fucking delivered. Oh, he did. I mean, I guess 
he is kind of an agent of Kronos. Kind but of. But he's very much like doing it for his own reasons. He is not like committed to the cause or anything. He right. just is old and has a lot of regrets. Well, okay, because the big twist we get, as you said in the summary, is that Quintus is Daedalus. Yeah, Quintus is a fucking Cylon body that Daedalus has downloaded his consciousness into, which rules, by this the way. Is, this is the perfect twist. Absolutely. We've been hearing about Daedalus this whole book, and he was inside of the Ubisoft protagonist the entire time. <laughs> Wait, Ubisoft protagonist? What makes you What makes you say that? Uh, what does Ubisoft do? Are they like Skyrim? Uh, no, that's Bethesda. Is that from software? From software is Dark Souls. He's inside of the Nintendo protagonist. Uh, yeah, it's... Well, I mean, his name is Latin. That makes him an Italian. He's inside of the JoJo's Bizarre Adventure character. Okay, this... I feel like you've, you've gone off the rails slightly here. I'm just gonna pick you up and place you back onto them. Thank you. Hey, what's that thing in the distance? Slowly riding towards me uh that is a brick wall with what if the ending is botched written on it oh okay what are you, what are you saying <laughs> nothing i just i just worry i understand these like past what like seven ten seven seven to ten chapters now have been good enough that like i feel like we got the momentum yeah the, the initial chapters were kind of dull but inoffensive and since then we've had like we've had some real bangers yes but i i really do want to talk about the quintus daedalus twist okay let's go what are your what are your thoughts there uh my thoughts are it's like (laughs) it's the perfect twist Mm -hmm. and it's like you know ideally a twist is like you have a bunch of incomplete information and then you finally near the end get given something else and it suddenly puts all of it into perspective and makes everything make sense. And that is like absolutely what this twist does. Like it explains where Quintus came from, it explains why he knew where the labyrinth was. It explains like the why he had contacts with Kronos's people. Like just everything like that. Plus, you know, it's just cool that he's a robot. Yeah, it's all it all adds up to being the perfect twist. And because of that, we haven't seen a lot of Quintus in this book but we have seen a lot of Daedalus yeah definitely and the way that the chapter ends Rachel, Annabeth, Nico and Percy jumping out of the window using Daedalus's most famed invention a a new version of it while Daedalus stays behind not like to defend the workshop that's burning around him that he has like killed his family to preserve Mm -hmm. but because he doesn't want to leave Mrs. O'Leary behind. Yeah. That's a that's like that's wonderful. Yeah, it's like it doesn't need to say anything to show that like he is clearly not the same person who let Perdix fall off that cliff. And it's not even that he's become a better person. <laughs> but it's still a show of like character growth. I don't know. He doesn't kill any children in this chapter. I'd say that does make him a better person. Well, okay, yes, but, like, (laughs) it's not that he's become a hero. Absolutely not. We've seen inklings of, like, Daedalus isn't such a bad guy. Like, we've we've seen Mm -hmm. that, like, he he taught that one king's daughters. Yeah, he's he's a feminist. He's a feminist. And (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> and like, I, I don't know. I just think that there was like enough provided beforehand that that feels like a very satisfying, what I assume will be a conclusion for his character for at least this book. Yeah. I'm also like, I'm a big fan of the way that like this was obfuscated to us. Uh-huh. Like it doesn't feel like cheating really. Cause like the, the way that we're kind of prevented from drawing a connection is that Quintus is defined by being a sword master. And that's not really like the book doesn't hit you over the head with that. It just shows him with a sword and then talks about him in that context. And then, you know, justifies it that, yeah, of course he'd be good with a sword. He has been alive for 2000 years. So it's a really neat way of like stopping us from guessing that twist ahead of time. Right. Without it feeling like cheap. Like if he'd been, he, like if he'd been introduced as like, oh, he's the new arts and crafts teacher, <laughs> or like the new like tech. I don't know. Like there, there are a lot of ways to go about it that would have been more obvious. Yeah, we might have clocked that something was up. Like you said, it's good obfuscation. I, I was just like pogging in the entire time. <laughs> like he comes out, and I'm like. And he's all like, I work only for myself. And I'm like, yes, Quintus is so cool. And then it's like, oh, he's Daedalus. That makes so much sense. And it's still so cool. Credit to you, of course, for, you know, saying the Daedalus will be a free agent thing. Or Quintus be a free agent (laughs) thing. Thank you. What else to talk about? Uh, Quintus being the Latin name for five to show that it's the fifth body. We were even talking about, like, isn't it weird that Quintus is his name when, like, we haven't really many people with Roman names? Yeah, that sounds kind of weirdly Roman. What's with that? Turns out. And if only, if only I'd gone to private school, I might have been able to figure it out. God. Wait, do they teach you Latin in private school? Yeah. They teach Percy Latin in private school. I guess so. They teach Latin in, like, public school, too, here. I think we've had this conversation before. We have. It's weird. But everybody know everybody knows that Quint means five. Excuse you, that's an extremely rude word. <laughs> okay, British person, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh god. Um should we what should we talk about now? Uh Daedalus should play basketball with Percy. We only want to talk about Daedalus. Uh he <laughs> he, he does say like I've even picked I've been pretty good at basketball. If he came back like while Percy is like shooting some hoops and like dunked on him, that would be a perfect send off for his character. Listen, we've been like hearing about Percy enjoys playing basketball for like four books now as like an incidental part of his character, but we've never seen it. True. And I feel like playing against a two thousand year old robot would be the perfect way to pay that off. Exactly. Speaking of excellent payoffs. Uh-huh. Uh Luke being in the coffin. Who that's fucked. Who boy. Okay, here's here's something that I've been wondering about. Right. So like a piece every time that a, a demigod like renounces Camp Half Blood, a new piece of Kronos goes into the coffin, right? Right. And we've also seen that Luke has been looking like more sick and fucked up as the series has gone. Mm-hmm. Have the parts been coming like off Luke and been being like transferred into the coffin, and this was just like the final bit of him being like transferred from outside into the coffin? Christ, I has he been like missing organs this whole time? I hope not. <laughs> that seems like too. I don't because he was only missing like a little piece of his like chest or whatever. 
Yeah, I guess it'd be kind of weird if that was just, like, lying on the ground somewhere. <laughs> right. Somebody was, like, carrying it in a cup. <laughs> one, one of the Draconae. Kelly just has it in her back pocket. <laughs> but, like, we just saw Luke, and he was pretty fully formed. That's true, yeah. Maybe a lot of people joined really fast. No, okay, that, that doesn't make sense either. <laughs> well, maybe none of them have renounced the gods yet. They just did, like, a lightning round and got everyone to do it at once. <laughs> that could have been it. Uh, so there's a lot of good payoff one the first one okay so it's luke in that coffin which uh-huh. makes because we, we've been talking about this we've been saying like oh why isn't luke carrying a sword why isn't luke carrying a sword it must be because he's like it must be because he's planning on turning against chronos he's finally like yeah, lost his loyalty knock. let's go no <laughs> nope <laughs> it turns out no <laughs> See, I'm kind of torn on this. Uh-huh. Because on the one hand, like, it turning out that Backbiter was the um, weapon that was being worked on in Mount St. Helens. You know, that's that's a good payoff to, like, the fact that Luke hasn't been carrying that sword this whole time. Right. On the other hand, I really like Backbiter as a villain weapon. And I'm kind of heartbroken to see it get, like, melted into something else. When we've only really had, like, one full-blown duel between... Percy and Luke using backbiter. Right. I I can agree with that. I think it's like obviously it's like good. Like this sword I've seen him carrying around the whole time was actually like Cronus's mm-hmm. old scythe or whatever. Yeah. That's cool. And it's also like an effective like symbol in hindsight of like how Luke was basically being groomed this whole time for Cronus's body. Definitely. And I guess you could also say that like because Luke talks about Backbiter as if it's a new sword when he first takes it out. Mm-hmm. Which kind of, you know, you could say that that shows that he wants to embrace, like, a new world without the gods. But it's actually just Kronos's old fucked-up scythe that he is swinging around again. So, you know, he's, he's actually just regressing everything by trying to take out the gods. Yeah. Hi, I'm an English student. I don't know if you could tell. I sound like an asshole whenever I talk about anything in the book. No, you don't. You sound <laughs> so. You sound very normal today. Thank you. Because you're right. Because this was like the tool that he you that Kronos used to kill the gods, and he's been using it this whole time. It's it's good that it's good that way. Hmm. I don't know. It's just such an effective reveal. Like this is exactly right. This is where the series needed to go with Luke's character. Yeah, definitely. I also wonder if like. This, this is a move also motivated by the fact that, like, it is a kids' book series. Mm-hmm. And to show Backbiter being used to its full potential, Luke would have to, like, hack a mortal to pieces. He'd have to kill Rachel Elizabeth there. He would probably have to do something like that. And I don't think that um, Rick was going to get let away with that by the publisher. <laughs> no, certainly not. It's a, it's a good weapon because of the threat it carries. Yeah. But it's not a gun that can be fired. Yeah, so maybe maybe this was the right thing to do with it, disappointing as it might be. And, you know, the new weapon is cool, too. Definitely. What do you think of, like, the fight between... Well, quote-unquote fight between Kronos and Luke? No, Kronos and Percy, sorry. The fight... Is, the quote-unquote fight is... terrifying. It's short and sweet and exactly what, like, a villain introduction needs to be. Specifically the villain of the entire series. Yeah. This is 
showing off like like some of the power like some of the power that Kronos has which I know that like like his position of lord of time like well how are you going to use like time powers the answer is the world the world yeah it it's it's like it's not much of a fight and it ends and like it ends in a very good way which is Rachel uh chucking a shoe or a hairbrush yeah, it's a pink plastic hairbrush that like hits him in the eye. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm into that for sure. It, you know, Rachel, Rachel gets a W. Yeah. But I don't know. I, I don't have anything bad to say about it because it's it's short. It's sweet. It shows off exactly what kind of threat the Kronos is. Yeah, Percy just gets the absolute shit kicked out of him. He like flicks a finger and, and Percy flies across the room. Yeah, and just like smashes into a marble pillar. This is what the fight against Ares, like, could have been. Yeah, well, I guess the difference there, the difference maker there was that, like, Percy was next to the sea. Exactly. Here, he is on top of a mountain several hundred meters above sea level. Exactly. This is the power of, like, the gods and the titans that we've seen in short bursts through usually, like, non-combat situations that are usually on Percy's side. Yeah, the only time we've really gotten a taste of this uh, was the fight with Atlas at the end of uh, Titan's Curse. And even then, Atlas was very clearly not as strong as Kronos. Atlas was mostly just a really big guy. Also, I, I want to point out one of my favorite details from this chapter. Mm-hmm. Which is that when Percy pokes his head out onto Mount Orthus, he can still hear Atlas screaming. Oh my god. Like, he's still just up there screaming and swearing and cursing Percy's name, which I just find incredibly funny. It's very funny. We've talked about, like, oh, this is all so epic. But it's also got, like, a lot of moments of humor in it. Oh, definitely. You know, Daedalus being good at basketball, Atlas being trapped in eternal torment. Lots of very funny things like that. Oh, actually, sorry, just to circle back to um, chapter 14. Uh Uh-huh. Just kind of add to what you were saying about how, you know, Ethan is kind of showing off, again, how fucked up the gods are. We also, I feel like it's left kind of ambiguous if the offerings that Antaeus uh, is making in the arena are actually accepted by Poseidon. Because, like, there's there's Poseidon flags everywhere, there's skulls everywhere, and, you know, they're, they're, they've had taken, like, ritual sacrifice of food before. You could You could put people in there. Oh, for sure. Like, with the characterization we've gotten of Poseidon, I feel like it's probably going to be one of those things where it's like, well, Antaeus is my son, but he's on a bad path or something like that. Back in the old days, I might have accepted tributes like that, but I have advanced beyond that now. <laughs> it could be. It could be. Or maybe it could be something a little bit more interesting of like, you know, well, he's my son too, and I, I just want to, you know, like that kind of thing. Man, what if like getting fucked up worship like that like made the god more evil oh my god like i just think that that would be like a cool concept if it like corrupts them yeah i i can see that that would be a cool story idea i think if that was part of this i would not complain yeah Um, i'm just gonna write down aphrodite corruption uh, as a story (laughs) idea and then Uh move on Uh (laughs) uh-huh uh oh um uh, I I just think this would be really funny. I just thought like a really funny idea for it. Uh-huh. What what if um like uh the more corrupt she got, like the bigger she got, like she, like 
uh like she you know maybe she grew like the size of a building wouldn't it be funny oh you know that's really interesting yeah i mean you, you could even justify that by saying you know she cares less about people seeing her godly form and etc and etc right right like it <laughs> like uh like maybe she like like takes her shoes off <laughs> <laughs> We need to stop. We need to stop. Um, we have to be stopped. We have to be stopped. I'm sorry, Aphrodite. Sorry, uh, <laughs> sorry, listeners. You've angered our patron goddess. Our listener numbers are going to go down now. Uh, speaking of listener numbers, shout outs to our listeners who have apparently been listening a lot more recently. Yeah, the numbers the numbers went up. And uh, also shout out to my good friend, uh, Darling Demon Eclipse uh, on Twitch and oh, Twitter. Oh shit, yeah who uh shouted us out on on her stream of hades i think that was really cool thank you yeah um what were we saying um listener numbers how'd we get there um oh aphrodite's feet um that (laughs) listen that will drive up our listener numbers i feel like i have faith in this idea you could say that it has legs oh uh speaking of legs okay uh goat legs furry legs oh yeah furry legs when we get to the scene in um the percy jackson show Uh uh-huh i mean it's going to be full of like hercules references anyway because it's a disney thing right and i think that pan should be played by danny devito (laughs) that'd be really good this was a nice resolution it was oh it had me feel in some kind of way what was that kind of way? Where Pan is like, oh yeah, well, you know, the the climate's fucked. Uh, guess, you, guess you should do something about that. And then does like the, the meme where he like does the peace sign and then fades away. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it was that hopeless. Specifically what he said when he died was, Remake the wild a little at a time, each in your own corner of the world. You cannot wait for anyone else, even a god, to do that for you. And... Like, this is a message everyone needs to hear, right? Like, uh-huh. it's a combination of, like, you got to do the little things, like, you know, rewild your rewild your areas and, you know, plant plant things that'll help the world. And uh, also, like, a slight combination with that meme that's like, I cannot get past the inescapable feeling that I am morally obliged to blow up oil infrastructure. <laughs> <laughs> Which, it, it's, it's very much like a combination of those two things. See, I didn't feel like it was really a common... I thought it lent way more on, like, the uh, individualistic stuff. Like, especially in the way that, like, you know, Pan dies and his power, like, goes into each of them. Well, I I, th- I would disagree because Pan has this little thing where he's like, well, my name used to mean rustic, but now it means all. Everyone has to work together to, like, save the wilds, basically. I don't know. It's, it's not as bad as this, for sure. But to me, it had the same kind of energy as, like, there was a recent episode of Doctor Who, which uh-huh. was, like, about climate change TM. Right. And it's basically like, oh, you know, this planet got fucked over by climate change. Uh, and then at the end, the like, the Doctor has this whole thing where she's like, well, the solution to this is that people need to face facts and change. Right. And the episode ends. And, that, like, again, this is not that bad, but I kind of, I feel like it's almost similar in some ways what i would say is that like i understand what you're saying and like there is that element of like 
Pan Pan isn't saying like, and you need to destroy the corporations that are destroying. <laughs> but to me, it doesn't come across as like a stop using plastic straws. <laughs> it, it's very much a like plant gardens, like make make the world better in little ways that you, as, as like as much as you can and in big ways too. Go and chill out with Calypso and plant moonflowers. Well, I was gonna say because Calypso also says to Percy. Like, when you get back to Manhattan, plant a garden for me. Oh, yeah. I think that together, like, really creates sort of a message of, like... If you live in a paved-over area, simply plant a garden. Well, there are, like, obviously, like, it's difficult. (laughs) But, like, I think if Percy Jackson... If this book doesn't end with Percy, like, going home and, like, planting flowers in the cracks of the street and, like, making a little garden... He goes home and he buys a Hummer. God, it, it'll be worse <laughs> off, is what I mean. Like, yeah. This is this is a big part of the book in the series, and I think that, like, I understand what you're saying. It does sound like a little bit of the whole, like, you know, don't use too much water or whatever. You, got, you gotta do your bit to save the bees, and then but, everything will be fixed. But I feel like it's more, like, everyone does need to do something. Like, part of it is obviously, like, you need to take out the the corporations that are doing this to the world. <laughs> but part of it is also, like, and we all also then have to work to, like, replace what's been what's been destroyed. Yeah, I mean, I definitely see that. It's possible that I have just been, like, I've been, like, spending the last few weeks trying not to slide into being, like, a doomer. I, I see what you're saying. So it's, it's possible that I'm just in that headspace. I, I, I totally get you. Like... The ocean was just on fire. It sure was. I get what you're saying. You think Percy's okay? Oh no, I hope so. <laughs> Listen, he carries the ocean within him. Does that mean that he was on fire when that happened? Oh no. Um. <laughs> good question. Maybe Poseidon's beard got a little burned. I mean, he could do with that. He'd look more like Hephaestus, who is one of the coolest god designs. Yeah, we didn't really go into like how kind of actually like gross the description of him was in like... There was a couple of things that we kind of, we got caught up in the hype of how good some of the bits of those chapters were, and we kind of forgot to address some other things. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll say this, that framing of Hephaestus was not particularly kind at all. And uh, like, hideous, I believe, is the word that was used. H- hideous. Um, one might even say that it was kind, kind of deplorable. A little bit. And this is kind of a, a persistent problem. Uh, speaking of persistent problems, uh, did in chapter 12, the the only bad bit of that chapter is where Rick Riordan continues to have a problem with homeless people existing. Uh, which one is that? Uh, Percy, like, looks in the mirror and looks at his reflection and says, Wow, if I saw a guy like this begging for money in the road, I would lock the car windows. Oh my, I didn't even notice that. I Yeah. Jesus Christ. Rick, get your act together. So yeah, Rick probably is not going to advocate, you know, <laughs> revolution at the end of this book series. No, it's unfortunate that... It's unfortunate. (laughs) Hey, what's Rachel Elizabeth Dare's deal? She's rich. She's definitely, like... Yeah, she's incredibly wealthy. She probably owns, like, the limo company or something. What I've gathered is that, like... She's a rich girl. Her parents don't care about her. Something happened with her mom? Mm Mm-hmm. Or her dad or something? And that's that's what I've got so far. 
her dad de- is definitely like dumping nuclear waste into a river somewhere is like the the vibe that what pan says to her has yeah and she was like i like i re- like she calls up a limo and i'm like oh she's rich it's okay that annabeth hates her they're like oh no <laughs> annabeth is rich too oh shit yeah i forgot yeah the her rich- dad owns planes the rich girls are fighting percy meanwhile simply lives in a flat in manhattan uh-huh poor guy um, poor guy has to um, interact with them all this time uh-huh what do you think about rachel elizabeth there I, I like her just fine i don't know that these chapters do a whole lot for her character mm-hmm. i think it's mostly just building intrigue and mystery around what her actual backstory is while she obstinately refuses to explain it yeah there's a lot of that um she and annabeth end up bonding by the end though that is nice where they're just like talking about buildings yeah and like you know they connect they connect on that level of like you know art and architecture not so different intersecting in a lot of ways and i think that's like that was necessary we get do we do we want to keep talking about this about like the annabeth jealousy thing because there's more of that in these i'm i'm over it i don't care it certainly exists i'm thinking about it i'm like i don't know it's obviously a romantic based thing now yeah, and unfortunately, uh, we are actually getting hints of a love triangle. Kind of. Well, because Rachel like, straight up has a bit where... She blushes. Fucking, yeah, she, oh, I didn't want to save you or anything, Barker. A little bit. I don't I don't think it's going to go that way. I hope it doesn't. Please, God, no. I'm glad that it's like Annabeth, she's presented as having a character flaw. Yeah. For being like which is which is good because we talked in the first time we talked about this about how like it was kind of like presented maybe in a bit of a normalized way did we no yeah we when we we when we talked about like annabeth seeing them come out of the place or whatever and oh yeah yeah uh you brought up that like it's kind of annoying that percy doesn't like challenge her on that or anything Mm mm-hmm I I think I'm glad that, like, it's being shown that this is, like, something Annabeth is, like, working through, kind of. Yeah, she seems to be, like, making a bit of an effort now, at least. But not only that, but it also seems to be, like, part of a larger thing with her, like... Annabeth has, like, a like a breakdown in these chapters, like, at the end. Uh-huh. I'm sorry, I'm speepy. Uh, good night, Jane. Um, uh, while Jane is asleep, let's do a special ASMR episode. Um, so Annabeth knows that something is going on and it's certainly affecting her mental state because she's having just like some panic attacks type of thing. Um, it's, it's definitely like, she's been acting weird this whole time. It seems like we're getting closer to maybe figure out the reason why that is. Maybe figuring out that last line of the prophecy. And I think that, uh, her jealousy over Percy kind of uh when it fits along with that same thing it it it, ta- it, it goes down a little bit e- easier and i appreciate oh, you know that what? uh-huh hi i'm awake again good morning hello uh i heard everything that you said uh in my dream because it was prophetically sent to me oh yay um i hadn't considered that maybe like the jealousy thing is something to do with the prophecy which you know that might make it a bit more tolerable in retrospect if it turns out to be like another big twist and it can't all be attributed to that because the she hadn't heard the prophecy yet when she first met Reg- Rachel. Oh, well, yeah. But I imagine it's at least partially that. Okay, but we are agreed. The child of Athena's final stand is definitely Daedalus dying, right? 
Yes. Like, that has to be what it is. Maybe we even saw it already. Oh, no, wait, no, because they said he didn't die. Nico knows when every single person dies. Yeah, that must suck. Yeah. He's like, it's a ringing in my ears. And I'm like, how, like, is it just people you know? Or is it, like, when anybody dies? Maybe it's within, like, 100 yards. Could be. <clears throat> I, I'm guessing it's, like, he has a... He knows when anybody he's met dies because, like, otherwise that'd be way too many people. Yeah, that would be kind of horrible. Uh-huh. Nico get, has it good in these chapters. Nico is... He's, he's coming back. We we learn that he didn't, like, angstily run off to go, you know, try and kill someone to get the, their soul. But he actually only went back into the labyrinth because Minos told him that he could help save Percy. Exactly. Which I really like. Nico had a lot of has had a lot of like inner conflict through here. It's it's part of why I wish that he was one of the main characters of this book. Yeah, it feels like he maybe hasn't gotten as much play as he should have. Yeah. But I do enjoy that like we're seeing that he's not just like I hate you all. You all suck. Ah. Like he took his sister's words to heart. Mhm. I don't know. I like that he's just like a good egg and also like an angsty egg. Also, I'm deeply sorry, Jacqueline. What's up? Um, but my assertion from the end of last week's episode has been further vindicated by these chapters. What was that? Uh, my assertion that this book series is turning into a fucking harem anime. <laughs> I, who's, who's been added now? Nico. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> I, I mean, kind of, but like. That's what we see in later books. I don't know. I don't know. I guess so. He's cool here, though. He He's like, I am the king of death or whatever. And yeah, that rules. It's like, Minos is like, I'm the lord of spirits, the ghost king. And Nico's like, no, I am. And then, like, sends Minos straight to hell. He can also, like, just, like, earthbend. Also, yeah, wait, yeah, what's with that? Well, I mean... Hades' domain is, like, also, like, the Earth itself a little bit. I guess, but also we just had the Earth God. Well, not the Earth God, the Earth. That that seems more... Wait, Poseidon just, like, dig a hole in the ground and... Oh, we can't... I gotta cut that. <laughs> I You can't say that. <laughs> I, I'm bleeping that. Um, so, Did, I mean... After the Aphrodite thing, I feel like that's not too far beyond the pale. Anyway... You could listen to that and have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> is my firm belief. Um, is there anything else? Uh, I don't think we've missed anything. I think we got everything. I hope Ethan. Ethan seems like he could be cool. I hope he sticks around. Ethan seems like he just kind of doesn't give a fuck. Which I like. Like he just starts talking to Percy while they're fighting. Yeah. And then his his version of renouncing the gods is, yeah, whatever, fuck it, I don't care. It's, I dig it, I dig it for sure. But I, I hope that he finds a way to just chill out somewhere that isn't an awful demon army. Because they did, let us not forget, make him fight to the death. It's true, and it's kind of weird that you went back to them after that. I don't know, maybe he's like... I don't know what he's doing. He's he's <laughs> he's the he's the kid of the god of betrayal and or revenge. Yeah, be sure that he's not the kid of the god of poor decision making. <laughs> I mean, sometimes same thing. 
It's very true. Uh, I think I think that's going to be it for us. We want to do like... I think, yeah. We want to go to our segment? I think we should go to our segment and then wrap things up. All right. Uh, Percy Jackson characters are not cishet. It's Let's... true. <laughs> do you have any any ideas for your pick for this week? I think my pick is... Let's go with Antaeus. Wrestles men. <laughs> That's... I mean, yeah, in, I mean, ancient Greek wrestling, I assume that was, there was probably some gay shit going on there. And let's be clear, he did wrestle to the death, but also, you know, you know. Maybe maybe within that, that fiery cauldron, maybe love can bloom on the battlefield. Yeah. Um... Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe while someone, maybe while Hercules is crushing you in his arms, <laughs> you, you find a bit of, you find a bit of uh, romance there. Uh, my pick is uh, the tourist who um, like loses his cab to Rachel and the other kids because being inconvenienced by uh, rich assholes is an everyday queer experience. I like didn't hear what you said but i'm gonna like i'm gonna i because my brain died i'm so sorry <laughs> I, <laughs> I i don't know everyone jacqueline's brain has been leaking out of her ears for this entire episode because she's thinking about aphrodite's feet shut up shut up <laughs> shut up shut up i'm gonna i'm gonna go walk outside and stomp around because i'm so mad <laughs> goodbye everyone Wait, we didn't, we need to actually wrap up the episode. Thank you for drinking of our nectar. Uh, That's the wrong thing. Who did you actually say? I need to I need to figure it out. I I said the um the tourist who gets his ride jacked by Rachel and the others. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, no, he's like there's a whole bit where like the guy who drives it is like, yeah, you're just gonna have to wait half an hour for another one. Sorry, your day's fucked. That's terrible. It is. Poor guy. I I believe in him. Homophobia one day will lose. But not this day. Not this day. Um, I think that'll do it for us today. We've had a messy one today, folks. We've we've had a bit of a messy one. These chapters were like jam packed. But we're enjoying it. Oh, absolutely. I, th- I think it was just unfortunate that like, because we tried to keep the number of pages consistent, and uh-huh. we just like we so happened to have to pick four chapters where like. Everything gets resolved and all sorts of twists are coming to light. And we had like just a shitload of stuff to talk about. Right. Um, but if you'd like to reach the show, check us out on Twitter at Girls. There you can find our email, our, our, the link to our Discord server and everything else. If you want to support us, you can find us on patreon.com slash unwisegirls. You can also uh, leave a rating or review or tell your friends. Everything really helps. Uh, for on our Patreon for a dollar a month, you get a special role on our Discord, marking you as a camp counselor, and the the very good feeling that you are helping a struggling podcast out. Yeah. Uh, for three dollars, you get an even specialer role as a friend of Dionysus and access to all of our special bonus content. Uh, if you're feeling super especially generous, for five dollars, you get the specialist role of Aphrodite's Chosen. All of our bonus content and a special shout out at the end of episodes. Uh, speaking of, this week we'd like to thank uh, Mercy, Veronica, friend, 
And Erica, Jane, please come up with a funny nickname for me, Faye. So, uh, Erica, uh, for this week, your nickname is Aphrodite's Feet. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> Thank you. And as we always say, at the end of every single episode. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.